Okay. Good afternoon and welcome to this afternoon's lecture. I'm Robert George, director of the James Madison program, which is sponsoring today's event as uh, part of our series of lectures on America's founding and future. It's a real pleasure for the Madison program to host Dr. Michael Grieva, who will speak to us today about real federalism or the division of powers between states and uh, the federal government. Dr. Grieva is one of our nation's leading authorities on this foundational issue of American political thought and constitutional law. Dr. Grieva is the John G. Searle Scholar of the American Enterprise Institute, where he directs AEI's Federalism Project and the AEI Liability Project. His research and writings cover American federalism and its legal, political, and economic dimensions. He's written widely on other issues in constitutional law and also in administrative law, environmental policy, and civil rights. Dr. Grieva is the author of The Demise of Environmentalism in American Law, Real Federalism, Why It Matters, How It Could Happen, subject of his lecture today. And most recently, his book, Sell Globally, Tax Locally, Sales Tax Reform for the New Economy. He's also editor with Fred L. Smith of Environmental Politics, Public Costs, and Private Rewards, and editor with Richard Epstein of the University of Chicago of Competition Laws in Conflict, Antitrust Jurisdiction in the Global Economy, which is forthcoming from the American Enterprise Institute Press. Dr. Grieva co-founded and from 1989 to 2000 directed the Center for Individual Rights, a very notable public interest law firm. He currently serves on the board of directors of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Please join me in extending a warm welcome to Dr. Michael Grieva. Thanks, Robbie. Um, my program today is quite simple. Uh, first, I'll try to persuade you that we have an acute federalism problem in this country and then a serious and deleterious political and economic consequences. And second, I'll try to persuade you that the root of that problem is that our federalism, the one we have, and the one that the Supreme Court has independently tried to revive, is an inversion of our actual constitutional federalism. It is kind of Madisonianism with a minus sign. Madison wanted federalism to constrain interest groups, and our federalism exalts and entrenches them. Madison wanted a federalism for citizens, and our federalism is a federalism that only politicians can love. That inversion, I'll try to argue, was the work of the New Deal, whose political logic is only now playing itself out. Um, I'm quite confident that I know that that is to our collective misfortune. I'm not at all sure what can be done about it. What is our federalism problem? The common view is to lament the accumulation of power in Washington, D.C. to the detriment of the states, and certainly there's a lot to that despite persistent complaints about federal meddling and overreach. We have since the, the end of the Reagan era witnessed the enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments, the 1991 Civil Rights Act, the No Child Left Behind Act in 2001, among countless other statutes, not to mention regulations. All of these laws entail major impositions on state and local governments as well as private industries. All of them were enacted under Republican presidents named Bush belying any suspicions that this is a vast left-wing conspiracy. Now, it turns out that federalism is not a zero-sum game between Washington and the states because political power may accumulate 
and government may grow at both levels at the same time. And so it has come to pass, concurrent with the growth of the federal government over the past two decades, um, the states have amassed an unprecedented amount of power and authority. And a handful of examples illustrate the trend. Example one. In 1998, one of the biggest single tax increases in American history, estimated at some $250 billion over 25 years, took effect. That tax hike, a national tobacco sales tax, occurred with a vote, without the vote of a single federal legislator, or for that matter, the vote of any legislator in the country. It was contained in the state's collective settlement of litigation with the nation's largest cigarette producers. Example two, dissatisfied with the progress of health care reform or the lack thereof in Congress, states have taken measures to control pharmaceutical drug pricing. Almost all of them have sued pharmaceutical firms in multi-state lawsuits, now pending in Carson City and Helena, on state law theories from fraud to price fixing to antitrust. The lawsuits are modeled on the 1998 tobacco settlement. Some states are exacting price concessions by threatening to exclude pharmaceutical firms from their markets. Other states are threatening to circumvent federal law and to purchase their drugs from Canadian suppliers. Federal agencies, and of course the pharmaceutical industry itself, have tried to stem this tide to no visible effect to date. Example three. Um, the tobacco agreement has since become the template for state activism in a lot of other areas. In a series of high-profile investigations, state regulators led by New York State AG Elliot Spitzer have taken on vast sectors of the nation's financial industries, from brokerage firms to mutual funds. Mr. Spitzer has emphasized that his investigations aim to impose nationwide industry-wide conduct remedies as distinct from the imposition of fines on individual bad actors. The state regulator's explicit and stated objective here is the national regulation of industries that are perceived to be operating without adequate government supervision. Now, I could go on to give you other examples. Uh, the state's antitrust prosecution of Microsoft, for example, which continued even after the national government had decided to settle the case or I could point you to a splendid article in Governing Magazine, a fine magazine for federalism aficionados, on California's ongoing successful attempts to legislate for the nation and indeed many nations other than ours, solutions on global warming policy, private data protection, internet taxation, and restitution for victims of the Nazi regime. The fact is this, even as the national government has assumed and often exercises the power to regulate the mud puddles in your backyard as a federally protected wetlands. States like California, which demonstrably cannot govern even themselves, claim and exercise the power to regulate the United States stock market and the global economy. Now, in a primitive sense, this unprecedented um, expansion of state power to regulate beyond their territorial boundaries is, of course, federalism. It's something the states do, but I submit that it is not constitutional federalism. It is, as I said, an inversion. And to see that point, I start at the beginning, the founding. Start with the basic question, why union? 
beyond the Articles of Confederation. The first and most obvious answer is to provide for the common good, for the common defense against European enemies and against hostile combinations among sister states. No state on its own could provide for its own defense against either of these threats. And so defense and all that goes with it, from diplomacy to raising uh, money for armies, is a public good, with, both with respect to citizens and with respect to states. And it has to be provided on a national scale. And that is why the Constitution entrusts those tasks exclusively to the federal government. There's a second argument for the Union, which is commerce, or commercial and economic. States and their citizens can trade to mutual advantage. But it's not a given or a certainty that they should be able to do so. State borders became, may become tariff walls. Economic competition may, de may deteriorate into economic warfare and sooner or later into actual warfare. Bilateral agreements among states may, of course, improve trade relations, but they're highly unstable and they're unlikely to come about when states bargain against an uncertain Baseline. So, for example, as Hamilton explained, New York may insist on its right to tax imports, including goods destined for New Jersey. But New Jersey will insist with, with equal right on remaining free from such burdens. And under those circumstances, the better part of wisdom is to lock states into a lasting arrangement that protects competition and comparative advantage. To that end, the Constitution forbids some protectionist state practices, such as tariffs and duties. It bars discrimination, state discrimination against citizens of another state. And it entrusts the national government with what economists now call a monitoring function, that is, the power to police state infractions against the, economic, against the competitive ground rules. That's the purpose of the congressional power to regulate commerce among the several states. The third argument for the Union is the most subtle, profound, and distinctly Madisonian, an extended republic, Madison explained in Federalist Number 10, is conducive to liberty. And the reason why that is so is that it inhibits faction and partial legislation, which was the founder's term for what we now call interest group transfers. The argument, of course, is sufficiently famous to bear translation into the vernacular. Within the states, Madison argued, even within a large state like Virginia, Citizens will be forever at the mercy of factions, which was Madison's term of art for what we now call piggish interests. And an extended sphere, an extended republic, diminishes that danger, forced the pigs to play on a continental scale, and they'll persistently bump into a larger number of pigs of different sizes and with different colored snouts. Measures adverse to the common interest will come about only if the animals manage to march off in the same direction. Such concerted action will be difficult because the factions will find out that positive transaction costs can ruin the best of days. Now, tellingly, in outlining that argument in Federalist 10, Madison makes virtually no mention of the states or federalism. And that suggests the tension between the central argument of, of Federalist 10 and the first two arguments for the union, that is, the public goods argument and the competitive advantage argument. Those two arguments suggest the delegation of specific, limited, and enumerated powers to the national government from the states. But the argument about extending the sphere of Republican government pushes far beyond that point of delegating specified, limited powers. All else equal, Madison seems to be saying, 
An extended republic offers refuge from the ravages of factional politics to the extent that imperfect human institutions can accomplish that. So on that assumption, why should the states, which are the hotbeds of faction, retain any kind of autonomy in any policy arena? And at the Philadelphia Convention, pre-Federalist papers, Madison, in fact, pushed the argument to that extreme. States, he said, were persistently enacting laws to exploit, expropriate, and otherwise menace citizens all across the continent. Debtor relief laws and the rage for paper money were Madison's favorite examples. One and all these, and this is a quote, these rival and spiteful measures were dictated by mistaken views of interest that is to say, by factional politics. And Madison proposed to fix that central problem right then and there in Philadelphia. Three times at the convention, Madison pushed for the adoption of a comprehensive negative. That is, a requirement of federal pre-approval of all state legislation in all cases whatsoever. No state law of any description, he argued with a persistence bordering on obstinacy, should go into effect without the approval of the federal legislature. Nothing but this draconian measure would break the violence of faction. Now, as we know, the convention rejected Madison's negative, and it did so because it viewed it as impracticable, unnecessary, and excessively nationalistic. Sure, the delegates conceded some state legislation um, might well encroach on the rights of the Union or the rights of, the, of sister states and of their citizens. But these instances would be rare compared to the great mass of state legislation, and a negative in all cases would be massive overkill. It would hardly do, George Mason observed, to obtain congressional consent every time a state wishes to build a bridge inside its own territory. Besides, Governor Morris, Morris remarked a negative would disgust all the states. None of them, John Rutledge agreed, would ever agree to be bound hand and foot in this manner. So what did they do? Well, instead of the Madisonian negative, the convention adopted a two-pronged solution. First, state legislation that might offend the rights of the Union may be set aside either by Congress in the exercise of its enumerated powers or by the courts in the course of deciding cases and controversies arising under the Constitution. That's the core meaning of the Supremacy Clause, which declares the Constitution and laws made in pursuance thereof the supreme law of the land. Anything in the Constitution or laws of the state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. Second, and this is important, with respect to state laws that are practically certain to violate the rightful interests of the Union and of sister states, the Convention, in fact, did adopt Madison's proposal, a requirement for congressional consent and, in some instances, an outright prohibition on state legislation. So, no state may enact a law impairing the obligation of contract, such as debtor relief laws. No state may issue paper money or enter into treaties with foreign nations or other states. Nor may any state impose duties of tonnage levy duties on imports and exports, enter into compacts, or maintain standing armies without the consent of the Congress. This is Madison's negative in a specified range of applications. What is that range? Well, almost uniformly, the constitutional prohibitions bar state laws that spill over state borders and that threaten to impose costs on citizens in other states. In arguing for a general negative and across-the-board negative, Madison had consistently adduced these very laws, 
but mainly as symptoms of the general malady, which is factional politics. The delegates in Philadelphia either missed Madison's broader point or else they deliberately left the problem of state-level factions to another day. Either way, they confined the constitutional negative to factionalism's outward projections, the interstate externalities, as economists now say. <clears throat> but even while the connection rejected Madison's broader proposal, it paid him quite a compliment. And here's why. A faction, an interest group that seeks to enact a partial law to its own advantage in a state must do so on somebody else's back. There's no free lunch. The losers in these endeavors, for their part, tend to do one of those two things. They either try to vote the bums out of office or they vote with their feet. And to avoid these responses, factions will persistently seek to impose the costs of their schemes on individuals who can neither vote nor escape. In other words, the citizens of other states. To put that differently, factionalism systematically pushes across state borders. And if you can arrest state legislation at the borders, you can curb factional politics on the decisive margin. One may reasonably doubt, as Madison did doubt, that this constitutional norm and aspiration is proportionate to the menace of factional politics. But I think one cannot seriously doubt that it is the constitutional norm and aspiration. The logic I've just tried to sketch explains why our Constitution, in contrast to virtually all modern federal Constitution, contains no states' rights. There's no list of functions or powers that are explicitly reserved to the states. The Constitution only contains a list of things that states may not do all of which, as I've just explained, fall under the heading of state aggression or interstate aggression. That's true. What then remains of federalism? And the answer, I think, is that the Constitution mobilizes federalism to tackle the government monopoly problem to a far greater extent than the national government. States must compete for productive citizens and for productive businesses. And this competitive pressure of exit will discipline interest group politics in which voice meaning, principally voting, will never do. The national government must, of course, provide public goods that the states cannot provide on their own, as in the case of scale problems, as in, for example, defense, or in the case of coordination problems, such as the regulation of network industries, first, first railroads, then um, other industries. Beyond that, the national government must also protect and preserve the competitive ground rules of the game. But that is pretty much all that the national government must and ought to do. And on all other matter matters, we can let and should let the states compete. This competitive vision of federalism naturally flows from two premises that were central to Madison's thinking. I'll call the first premise the citizen's perspective. The second premise is the central role of interest group theory to an understanding of federalism and its political economy. These crucial premises of, uh, of these are, I think, the, the critical premises of constitutional federalism, and as I'll go on to argue, they're precisely the premises that the New Deal has inverted. I'll start with what I've just called the citizen's perspective. When Madison thinks and writes about federalism and government in general, he starts with the citizen's welfare as the basic criterion of sensible institutional 
Arrangements, he refers to the happiness of the people of America or the real welfare of the great body of the people. Could one start with anything else? Yeah, well, one could. As the unfortunate phrase of states' rights suggests, one could start with the states considered in their collective political capacity or um, as, as the founding, as the, the building blocks of federalism. And in the formative period of political unions, that is quite a natural view. So, for example, we ask ourselves whether this or that arrangement for the European Union is good for Germany or Britain as distinct from individual constituencies within those countries, or for that matter, for European citizens, assuming that such persons exist. But this state-centered view was not Madison's perspective. It was the anti-federalist perspective, and Madison invade against it with great vehemence. The central passages appear in Federalist Paper Number 45. The preceding papers had shown that the powers transferred to the federal government um, were altogether necessary and proper. In numbers 45 and 46 purport to show that the states will ne have nothing to fear from the federal government, principally because the affections of the people will always run towards states. That contention, of course, has proven false. And there are good reasons to doubt that Madison actually believed it at the time. But it is, in any event, not where he begins the argument. He begins, rather, with a full-scale assault on the anti-federalist state's rights premise. If the powers transferred to the federal government are indeed necessary, he asks, and this now comes a string of quotes, is it not preposterous to urge as an objection to the government without which the objects of the union cannot be attained that such a government may derogate from the importance of the governments of the individual states? The preposterous of that state's rights perspective is its real-world disconnect. And again, I quote, was the American Revolution affected? Was the American Confederacy formed? Was the precious blood of thousands spilled and the hard-earned substance of millions lavished? Not that the people of America should enjoy peace, liberty, and safety, but that the governments of individual states, that at particular municipal establishments, might enjoy a certain extent of power and be arrayed with certain dignities and attributes of sovereignty? Without missing a beat, Madison then moves on to the third rhetorical question. Now he's accusing Patrick Henry and his cohorts of closet royalism. We have heard of the impious doctrine in the old world, that the people were made for kings, not kings for the people. Is the same doctrine to be revived in the new, in another shape, that the solid happiness of the people is to be sacrificed to the views of political institutions of a different form? And he continues, now in the affirmative, it is too early for politicians to presume on our forgetting that the public good, the real welfare of the great body of the people, is the supreme object to be pursued, and that no form of government whatever has any other value than as may be fitted for the attainment of this object. That's the citizen's perspective in a single sentence. The second premise, interest group theory. As I've already explained, um, Madison's account of faction was central to his constitutional thinking, but a few additional words on the subject are in order. Foremost, he thinks factions are unequivocally bad. The word typically appears in conjunction with words such as mischief, violence, strife. But factions and factional politics 
are also unavoidable under free government, and the point of a constitution is to restrain factions through ex-ante rules and arrangements. Remember Madison's formulation. It is too early for politicians to presume on our forgetting the real welfare of the people as the supreme object. So long as the sacrifices for independence and the imbecility of the Confederation remain fresh in mind, it may be possible to prevail over populist passions and entrenched interests and to establish good government from reflection and choice, as Federalist One put it. But sooner or later, we will forget, will succumb to factional self-interest. We will also be rationally ignorant about politics and thus unable to monitor the politicians who execute schemes for some other faction. We will, of course, always watch very, very carefully what the politicians do for us today. And so a constitution written in a fortunate moment of public lucidity and attention must protect against the everyday risks of opportunism and ignorance. Its operative norms must be understood in light of that purpose. A constitution that fosters ignorance, illusions, and interests is a failed constitution and arguably worse than none at all. Unfortunately, a constitution of ignorance, illusions, and interests is precisely the so-called constitution that we now have, and the thing that made it so is the New Deal. Madison, as I mentioned, was deeply suspicious of interest group politics. The New Deal celebrates it. Madison sought to constrain politicians to protect citizens. The New Deal liberates politicians to fool all of the people all of the time. Let me sketch a few very basic elements of the New Deal's constitutional order and then trace them to the inversion of Madison's premises. The New Deal uh, is usually viewed as a nationalist phenomenon. The constitutional prohibitions against the indiscriminate exercise of state of, of federal power fell by the wayside, the story runs. The federal government assumed authority over a therefore unimaginable array of functions. But this interpretation is only half correct. As I mentioned at the outset, federalism is not a zero-sum game between the states and the feds. Given the right or rather the wrong constitutional rules, you can have power accumulate at both levels at the same time. And the New Deal created precisely those rules. Concurrent with a massive expansion of federal authority, it engineered an equally massive expansion of state authority. For a prominent example, the Supreme Court abandoned the notion that the Commerce Clause restricts of its own force state regulation and taxation of interstate commerce. It was during the New Deal that the, the Court first initiated a gradual expansion of the state's authority to tax interstate transactions. Um, the, the current effort to extend sales tax, state sales tax collections to internet sellers that have absolutely no connection to the taxing jurisdiction or the tail end of that development that started 60, 70 years ago. The court weakened substantive constitutional norms such as the Equal Protection Clause that had formerly constrained the exercise of state power. Above all, the New Deal greatly expanded the extraterritorial reach of state courts the crucial case there was the famous 1938 decision in the Erie Railroad, written by Justice Lewis Brandeis, the principal architect of New Deal federalism, and so on. So prior to the New Deal, the deal was this. The constitutional deal was this. The states are free to regulate stuff within their borders, and in that regard, they in fact had protection against national interference. But the flip side of that deal was 
state regulation had to stop at the borders. And the New Deal wiped out all of those uh, uh, limitations, in particular the limitation against the extraterritorial, extraterritorial uh, exercise of state authority. To add one more wrinkle, even the New Deal expansion of national and especially congressional authority serves not so much to impose upon the states, but rather to protect them from competition with their sister states. That's true with respect to the most pervasive institutional practices of our federalism, regulation, funding programs enacted under the spending clause, and the perversion that now passes for state competition. I'll take these in order. Regulation. Prior to the New Deal, legislation concerning minimum wages or workplace safety was thought to be beyond the authority of the Congress. Such statutes do not regulate interstate commerce at all. They regulate the terms and conditions of employment and production, which were then considered separate matters. The states were entirely free to regulate those matters, and many of them, in fact, did do so. But in so doing, the states were constrained by the threat that jobs, factories, businesses, taxpayers might move to more hospitable states. The New Deal expansion of federal authority over those affairs removed that competitive threat. And for precisely that reason, the states overwhelmingly welcomed it. Not one of them ever challenged a New Deal statute in the courts. As Robert Jackson, Justice, later Justice Jackson, observed, corporations carried the states' rights plea against the states themselves. Spending. The New Deal and later the Great Society brought an enormous expansion of federal entitlement and spending programs from Medicaid to education. Obviously, those programs expand the power of the federal government, which collects the revenue, <clears throat> excuse me, and sets the conditions on which the money is to be distributed. But again, the programs are des designed primarily to produce a concurrent expansion of state power, with one important ex exception, that being Social Security. Federal funds do not bypass the states. They are instead given to the states to administer on certain conditions, usually including the condition that the states match federal funds in some proportion. Those statutes enable states to run programs that their own citizens left to their own devices, that is to say in the absence of federal support, would never agree to fund. And in addition, the federal programs make it easier for states to tax their own citizens on the argument that a failure to fund education or Medicaid would entail a, quote, loss of federal dollars. That's why the state's tax, tax, tax take has more than doubled since World War II, from about 5% of GDP to, to now over 11%, even as the federal tax take has remained stable at about 18%. This is also why the states did not fight federal grants programs during the New Deal. They demanded them, and they continued to demand these programs. So-called competition. The case for competition in markets or among governments rests on a rough utilitarian calculus. And here it goes. Private competition undoubtedly causes real harm. Companies go belly up. Workers lose their jobs. But we don't compensate such harms or, by and large, immunize firms against their occurrence. Why don't we? Well, because compensation would defeat the system. Each firm would, at the margin, be indifferent between competing for customers and being compensated for losing them. Compensation claims would generally be less arduous than the rigors of competition, and at the end of the day, there'd be nothing but compensation and no one left to pay the bills. 
And it's the same with governments. When Nevada or Colorado offer favorable business climate, California loses productive citizens, jobs, revenue, and spades. Those losses are real, but we can't count them as a harm or an externality. If they did successful, states would have to compensate the losers. States would lose the incentive to compete, and we would all be worse off. That's the logic. And lo and behold, the New Deal again inverted it. It vilified interstate, com interstate competition as a race to the bottom and then contrived to cut it off, principally by establishing uniform federal regulation in the domains where states might be most tempted to compete. The result, however, is not a competition-free environment. Because the extension of federal power in this, into the state's formerly exclusive domains means that every transaction is now subject to at least two overlapping regimes, the states and the feds. And the concurrent expansion of the state's extraterritorial powers raises the number of legally competent regulators to 51. So if you run a firm anywhere in the country and you do business across the country, every one of your transactions is potentially subject to 51 different regulatory regimes. Since firms must comply with all the regimes, they must comply with the strictest regime. And under those circumstances, states cannot compete by offering a regulatory haven or even by charting a reasonable, safe middle course. They can compete only by regulating more strictly than the feds or any of their neighbors. And when the costs of state regulation fall predominantly on out-of-state parties, as they now do, states have a powerful incentive to engage in that sort of, quote-unquote, competition. Judge Richard Posner has compared this one-directional competition to a private market where automakers are allowed to compete only by offering automobiles with more horsepower. But even that comparison does not quite capture the logic of our federalism in light of the massive extraterritorial effect of our federalism of state regulation. It would be more accurate to say that our federalism resembles a market where the only permissible form of competition is trespass. The basic, so, now that I have tried to put these basic institutional dynamics in place, let me make good on my promise to trace them to the inversion of Madison's premises. I start with factions and then I'll turn to the citizens' perspective. The factions. As I explained, Madison viewed federalism as a way of constraining factions. In contrast, the chief theoreticians of the New Deal insist on openness, government openness to faction as a principal virtue. An interest group that cannot prevail in one institutional forum can always turn to another and then to a third. Some government agency somewhere will always be open for interest group participation, and that's supposed to be a good thing. Now, the essence of factional politics is redistribution. Competitive federalism curbs that appetite. Let any state tax Peter to pay Paul, and Peter will move to a more hospitable state, so long as he has an exit. But the New Deal, as I mentioned, eliminated the exits by authorizing federal redistribution and by allowing states to impose the costs of their schemes on other states. In other words, redistribution and factionalism no longer stop as the founders intended at the borders, which means they no longer stop anywhere. And this glorification of interest group politics is our federalism's Archimedean point. I offer as an instructive example Louis Brandeis's, Justice Brandeis's dissent in New State Ice Company versus Liebman. This is a 1932 case 
and it contains his fa famous paean to the states as experimental laboratories of democracy. The case is virtually unknown for anything except that cliché, but it, I think, rewards a closer look. At that time, America still had an ice industry, not as in ice cream, but ice cubes, blocks. And that industry was threatened by a newfangled invention. It was called the refrigerator. And so the beleaguered ice merchants enlisted the state to organize a cartel in Oklahoma with restrictions on market entry, output, and various forms of price and non-price competition. Supreme Court in that case invalidated the statute as wholly irrational and unrelated to any conceivable public purpose. Oklahoma statute, the court declared, was purely partial law enacted for the purpose of procuring monopoly rents for the ice industry. What's striking about Justice Brandeis's dissent there is that he didn't seriously dispute that characterization. In fact, he noted with approval the ice, industry, ice industry's acquiescence in the statute and, and now I quote, its unremitting efforts through trade associations, informal agreements, combinations of delivery systems, and in particular through the consolidations of plants to protect markets and prices against competition of any character. No trace there is left of Madison's fear of faction. Oklahoma's courageous experiment deserves respect even though it is, even if it is, and even though it is, an undisguised naked interest group transfer. Federalism and the celebration of interest group politics here go hand in hand. Now, in fairness to Brandeis, Oklahoma was trying its novel social and economic experiment without risk to the rest of the country, as Brandeis put it. Ice wasn't easily shipped over long distances, and that meant that the Oklahoma industry operated and would have reaped its monopoly profits exclusively within Oklahoma. And if the citizens of Oklahoma consent to that sort of exploitation, that's arguably their problem. But it was the celebration of interest group politics, not the territorial limitation, that proved lasting. Eleven years after New State Ice and Parker versus Brown, a very, very important antitrust case, the Supreme Court looked at a state-organized cartel of the same variety. The state there was California rather than Oklahoma. The product was raisins rather than ice. And of critical importance, virtually all of the production, 95% uh, of California's production, was destined for exports to other states. California at that time accounted for the entire raisin supply in the United States market. Manifestly here, California was not experimenting on its own citizens. It was systematically exploiting the citizens of other states for the benefits of the domestic industry. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court unanimously sustained the California cartel, or more precisely, the marketing orders for the 1940 crop in Raisin Pro Ration Zone Number 1 against a challenge under the Sherman Act and the Commerce Clause. And that official nihil obstat to state-sanctioned exploitation remains unquestioned law today. Let me turn quickly to the state's perspective here. The founders, as mentioned, hoped that federalism would discipline the states. Our federalism empowers them. It's arranged for the convenience of state officials, the politicians, as Madison sneered. The institutional devices that I've described, federal funding and the unshackling of state power, illustrate the point. Uh, I'll take the funding first. Economists have shown that federal funding of local programs induces a higher level of spending than the citizens of any jurisdiction would choose under autarkial conditions, that is to say, if their jurisdiction were alone in the world. So federal intervention here systematically trumps any and all 
local preferences. And that cannot possibly enhance the real welfare of the great body of the people. It does, however, in, uh, um, enhance the interests of the politicians. How so? Well, local politicians have a professional interest in satisfying interest group demands. Unfortunately for them, the demand from the interest groups always outstrips the local supply. That is to say, the extent to which the state's citizens are willing to tax themselves. And federal funding fixes that problem by exploiting the citizens' rational ignorance. Here's what I mean. Consider federal funding for some local scheme. Agricultural subsidies, education, whatever. The dollars travel from local citizens to Washington, D.C., where they spend an expensive night on the town. They then travel back, not to the citizens, but to Albany and Trenton, where they spend another expensive night. Then they travel on, though again, mostly not to citizens, but to local bureaucrats who are supposed to supply these local goods. And when the fractional leftover finally reaches the citizens, what will they do? Well, in all likelihood, they will thank the politicians up and down the distribution chain and never know that the politicians and their interest group clientele have played the taxpayers for suckers. The dollars that went into the system and those that get stuck along the way are untraceable even for the experts, let alone the citizens. And the pennies that come out in contrast are highly visible because the politicians will see to that. With equal ease and confidence, economists have shown that extraterritorial regulation leads to a higher level of regulation than any individual jurisdiction would choose under autarkial conditions. Small wonder when the costs of regulation are paid by outsiders, while the benefits accrue mostly at home, the state government becomes a sort of standing committee for the free lunch. One might think sister states should resist that exploitation, but one would be wrong. And here's why. When state A sets out to exploit sister state B, it doesn't really attempt to exploit B as a state. It tries to exploit B's citizens. And state B has the same design on state A's citizen. In both states, a successful attempt to exploit out-of-staters will earn the politicians kudos at home, and the out-of-state citizens who pay for the scheme will be none the wiser. And so a federalism that permits state governments to exploit each other's citizens makes all politicians better off, even while it makes all citizens worse off. Economists capture these kinds of dynamics under the term fiscal illusion. Just about everyone winds up a loser under the scheme, and still everyone thinks he's better off. I think a fair calculation of the social costs here, though, should also include the net loss in adult citizenship. As de Tocqueville noted famously, federalism is confusing when power is dispersed. Citizens can't, even, can't easily figure out who's responsible for what. That's a real cost of federalism in any permutation relative to a wholly unitary system. The question is whether the cost is worth paying, and I think the answer depends on federalism's design. Competitive federalism confuses citizens in the same way in which Western shopping malls in the days of the Cold War confounded occasional East Bloc visitors. There's just so much stuff around. But over time, consumers learn to sort, order, and act on their preferences, which in turn induces suppliers to improve their products. Of course, that doesn't occur under monopolistic conditions, which is why West Berlin's shoe supply was always better than East Berlin's. And the social costs that you pay for that kind of confusion, uninformed choices, search costs, switch costs, are worth it 
because the social gains, product innovation, differentiation, consumer satisfaction are so high. Our federalism, in contrast, is confusing in a very different way. Government cooperation makes it impossible to assign responsibility. Where competitive federalism offers a broad range of products, each from one exclusive provider, our cooperative federalism institutionalizes joint production, that is, state, local government, and federal government produce these things together. At the front end, that form of production increases information costs for citizens. At the back end, it limits the range of choice. The typical urban school district now administers over 200 state and federal grants programs, each with its own funding stream, requirements, and political constituency. If the local school collapses under that and fails to perform, whom do you blame? If you cannot escape that system except by moving to the exurbs, whose fault is that? You don't know, and neither does anybody else. It's become fashionable to lament civic disengagement. Citizens were told we should participate, we shouldn't simply consume. The glitch, of course, is that our federalism here rewards no participation. If there's no reward for informed citizenship, why is disengagement an irrational response? The only benefits from participation accrue to organized interests that have learned to game the system. Why is it not more sensible and perhaps nobler to bowl alone? In a brilliant and angry essay written over two decades ago, the late Aaron Wildovsky described our federalism as an intergovernmental conspiracy against citizens. He didn't mean to suggest that the politicians meet behind closed doors to loot the rest of us, although that happens on occasion. Uh, the system as a whole is far too big to be run in that fashion. What he meant is this. The most clever, conniving cabal of politicians could not design a more efficiently exploitative system than our federalism. I'll end with these few remarks. Is there any way back to competitive political arrangements to the constitutional order? An optimistic answer might begin with a charge that I've, as usual, grossly overstated the problem. No political regime ever plays itself out to its logical conclusion. Our federalism's aspiration is to stamp out competition, but the chances of doing so are inversely proportionate to the citizen mobility and entrepreneurial spirit, and this is an exceedingly mobile and entrepreneurial nation. Citizens and businesses choose their state on any number of margins, and our political institutions find it hard to keep pace with that. There's obviously something to this argument, except, unfortunately, I think not as much as one might hope. First, there's no good reason to believe that state competition on the remaining margins is efficient. In the days when interest rates were regulated, some of you may remember this, banks competed for customers by giving away toaster ovens. In the same way, states now seek to attract business through targeted tax breaks and subsidies. And these sweetheart deals are, so to speak, the monetized equivalent of the broad-based regulatory advantages that states would offer if federal laws, from labor regulations to environmental standards, did not prohibit competition on those margins. And to celebrate these sort of forms of industrial policy engineering, tax breaks, and so forth, as competition is like saying that toaster ovens make for better banking. The more important point is that our inverted federalism has a self-reinforcing logic and momentum. As I mentioned, we're now only now playing out the, the logic of the um, New Deal. Um, our political system 
is meant to be cumbersome and unwieldy. Those design features make eminent sense in forestalling hasty interventions in private arrangements, but they turn into liabilities when the task at hand is, as it is now, prompt energetic intervention to arrest state overreach into national affairs, or for that matter, national overreach into local affairs, as Madison understood very well, the system is simply not built for those kinds of contingencies. I don't underestimate America's mobility and entrepreneurial spirit, but I think those energies are unlikely to be directed to, towards restoring political competition. They're more likely and more profitably directed towards escaping the system. I think no sensible citizen will invest much hope in the absurd intergovernmental effort to leave no child behind. The sensible course here is to leave every child behind except one's own and to escape to the safety of a private school. And what is fair for parents is fair for investors. When public offerings are overregulated as they now are, do a private offering. And I think private exit will continue to produce a better world but not a more constitutional world, nor for that matter a better world on the many issues where exit um, is impossible or excessively costly. Um, we can't escape the American liability system. We can't escape the tax obligations that come along with federal funding programs. On those issues, one has to hope that we come to our collective senses and to some recognition of the Madisonian premises. Those premises, of course, continue to resonate, I think, but they don't translate into a political program. What's the transmission belt? I think for better or worse, it has to be the Supreme Court, because that's the institution that's best at aggregating diffuse sentiments, because all the other institutions are doing just fine, thank you, under our current inverted system, uh, and because the Supreme Court is, after all, the institution that's supposed to protect and enforce the Constitution. Now, Considering the, rec uh, the, the Rehnquist Court's record on matters of individual rights, it may, seem to, it may seem absurd to suggest that the justices should enforce anything at all, in particular anything they believe to be in the Constitution. But I think, in fact, the sustained refusal to enforce structural constitutional safeguards is as illegitimate as the invention of non-existent constitutional rights, and both are of a piece. I'll give you one final example. Justice Ginsburg is a leading exponent of the now distressingly common judicial practice of citing international human rights conventions, some of which we have signed but not ratified, in support of newfound rights against state impositions on women, racial minorities, or homosexuals. Yet when the state of California attacks the worldwide income of corporations that lose money on their California corporations, Justice Ginsburg sustained that practice in derogation of a United States-Britain-British tax treaty that we actually did ratify. So even as the states must bow to ethereal human rights aspirations, California may exercise its sovereign powers extraterritorially, even to the ends of the earth. The unifying theme behind these incongruous but equally unconstitutional and anti-constitutional positions is our inverted federalism. If one may nonetheless hope hope for judicial reversal at some future time. That is because I hope, I think, the intellectual ground may be shifting. The sitting justices all completed their formal education and, for the most part, their intellectual trajectory before the application of economic scholarship and public choice models to legal problems, including constitutional problems, gained broad intellectual acceptance.
And that, I submit, may or hope may come to make a big difference. Will the judicial heirs of the New Deal, liberal or conservative, regurgitate Justice Brandeis' encomium to state experimentation? Jurists informed by more modern scholarship, again, liberal or conservative, are bound to understand that price controls, the actual subject of new state ice, are among the very few things with which we really don't have to experiment because we know that they're always inefficient. Where the sitting justices invade power, some of them invade passionately against common law adjudication because they fear that their colleagues might use that to fabricate new rights. Modern scholars have moved on to examining the conditions under which constitutional common law is or is not efficiency enhancing. I have confidence in these economic models and their force not so much because they are better economics than the antediluvian drivel of the New Deal, although that is true. My confidence rather rests on the fact that the modern economic models are largely refinements and formalizations of the Madisonian framework from Madison's um, premise of faction as the basic problem of democratic governance, a path leads straight to Mansur Olson. James Buchanan and Frank Easterbrook, who to our collective good fortune is already a federal judge. Madisonian's utilitarian calculus, the real welfare of the great body of the people is the basis of the law and economics school in its various shades from Richard Epstein to Richard Posner, another federal judge come to think of it. Let political economists go to town on the basic elements of, an optimal, of optimal constitutional design and the beast looks suspiciously like the Constitution that we once had. I think it would be a big mistake to put too much, too, too big a bet on this intellectual shift, a reform idea that must rely on a single and severely frayed transmission belt, namely the federal judiciary, uh, to, to throw an enormously complicated and resilient system into reverse is manifestly in very deep trouble. But then again, new ideas may, after all, have consequences, even if, and in this case, because they are actually quite old. Thank you. All right. Well, the floor is, uh, is open. Do any students want to begin with questions? Yes, uh, Michael Watson. mission or self-understanding is not just for their, themselves, but they have an idea of what would be best for the whole, as opposed to a narrow interest like an economic interest. And it strikes me that those who would be sympathetic with uh, your view on the economic factions uh, aren't going to be sympathetic with limiting broader social issue factions. They're still going to want to be able to participate in that. In other words, how do, how do you encourage um, the, the former without uh, hurting the latter for those people who are really referred to as the leave us alone constituencies in some of your other ways. That would come back to haunt me at some point. Look, uh, on I think at some level it doesn't really matter whether the underlying impulse or passion here is economic or not. Okay? 
I think the logic of choice and people sorting themselves and exercising their exit rights uh, is equally powerful. Uh, there's one limitation to that, and, and it's this. Um, some of the some of the constituencies or factions that you mentioned, okay, go to um, issues that have to deal with the very, very fundamental premises of citizenship. Stuff where we can't just say that's just a matter of your individual preference. That's just your choice, right? So where we have to have some central norm. Now, with respect to a whole lot of issues, and, and to give you an example in case this sounds hopelessly abstract, one of them is abortion, and on both sides, there are people who say, no, this is so fundamental, we can't have a choice on this, right? Um, it, it, look, where exactly do you draw the line? Where comes? Where is the point where you say, no, at this point in time, at, at, at this level, we, we cut off choice, and we have to have one central rule? I don't know. I think there are hard, I mean, that there are a lot of very, very difficult um, uh, issues um, and, and questions and whether any one of these issues should fall into the no, we don't allow you to choose um, category or the we're all better off if we just sort themselves or at least leave that option open. I don't want to give an a priori answer. I'll say this much. I would be very, very skeptical before putting any issue into the sort of this has to be one rule category above and beyond what's already in the Constitution. And the reason why I would be very, very skeptical, one of the reasons is that the, the choice logic just strikes me as so eminently powerful uh, in, in so many ways. Right? And the second thing I'd, I'd say is, fine, let's all agree, there are a lot of very difficult debates on the margin, on that particular margin, but there is no reason to let those special cases overwhelm the general vision. Michael, do you want to follow up? No? Uh, yeah, Steve Peels. Oh, sorry, uh, we still have another student. Catherine? Sorry, Steve, well, I'll get you next. Sorry, Catherine. Sorry. Steve always has a question. Right. So well, then somebody else. <laughs> Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how participation by the citizen factors into all of this. You talked a lot about the welfare of the people, very little about political participation and for specific forms of it, for instance, voting, petitioning, protesting, these kinds of things. Um, and I, I'm not exactly sure, I mean, you gave some proposals as to how we might reverse this trend. I'm not sure exactly what your proposal is for what the ideal would be, concretely speaking, but I'm wondering how we balance between the danger of factionalism at the state, at the state level and even the local level on the one hand, and on the other hand, the fact that there's so very little opportunity for, sub, for substantive participation of the individual in national politics beyond you know, going to the polls every couple of years. It's much easier to talk to your state politician, even if he is a scumball, than it is to talk to your, to talk to a national politician. Look, it's a terrific, um, terrific question. And there is an undeniable tension there. And the tension is this. The more you stamp your foot and say, let's have competition on any number of margins and in any kind of domains, right? The counter-argument is always, wait a minute, wait a minute, that really at the at the at the other end 
constrains effective participation. Right? There's no denying that tension. Uh, I'll, I'll say a few words about it, why I'm, I'm not particularly impressed or terribly concerned about the tension. But it is there. Um, to give you the um, to give you the international equivalent, and, and it is the precise equivalent of, of your question. Um, there, there are a lot of ways in which um, domestic constituencies now are much more constrained in a globalized world economy uh, than once upon a time they were. Okay? In fact, the anti-globalization movement's argument is precisely that global trade under open border conditions constrains domestic democracy. We are no longer free to have this law or that law to protect our food supply or to do this or the other thing or to protect our jobs, right? Because people move because we will be constrained and we will pay a price. Why is that price bad to pay? Well, the anti-globalizers say, uh, look, the most mobile factor of production will dictate the terms. The most mobile factor of production happens to be capital, right? That's a totally contingent and accidental fact. Why should we have our domestic um, priorities dictated by the sheer fact that capital can move at the push of a button? Right? And so our domestic arrangements are unduly constrained by all these open borders, by this more competitive international environment. And the same argument plays itself out, and in fact did play itself out in precisely those terms in the years leading up to the New Deal. Here is um, why I'm skeptical about the force of that argument. I mean, the, the argument has undeniable force. Here's why I'm skeptical. And, and here's where I would add a qualification. The argument would impress me if the domestic political discourse were just that, if it were a discourse, something out of Jürgen Habermas, right? Or something that at least sort of vaguely resembles sort of a working democracy. Everywhere I look, people are deeply, deeply dissatisfied with their domestic political institutions. You look at sort of public opinion polls. Do you trust your government to do the right thing? You know, two-thirds of the people say no. In Western Europe, it's now up to 70%. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons why that is so is that people perceive, and I think they perceive rightly, that domestic politics, what we now call participation, is in fact driven by interest group demands. It's very sort of entrenched, rigid um, politics. If that is the problem, right, then it might be worth uh, it, then in fact exposing that kind of an entrenched interest group apparatus external competition might in fact be a good thing. It's a corrective, and it might in fact give people, ordinary people, who would otherwise not have a chance against these interests, a chance. It doesn't make it automatically better, but it is at least a constraint on, on the system. And so it, the, the, the tension that I mentioned earlier between sort of open borders and, and competition on the one hand and domestic uh, democratic um, traditions and principle, uh, on the other, is not quite as straightforward as it, as it might seem. I, I think in a lot of ways you could argue, and I would forcefully argue, or try to argue with what force, I don't know, but I would try to argue that competition among governments may in fact do a whole lot to, to improve democratic decision-making within 
domestic jurisdictions, and that that is true internationally as well as nationally here at home. But it's a terrific question. Okay, good. Well, then the floor is open, and we'll start with uh, Dr. Kelly. The, um, <clears throat> this is an introduction. I mean, there's sort of two levels at which one can do a kind of political philosophical analysis. Right? One is at the level of uh, distributive justice, right? Who should get what? And the other is at the level of institutional design, right? How should we structure political institutions so that so as to create um, a decent government and one that, that, that uh, channels participation in the right way. And the interesting thing of your argument is it's primarily at the level at which political philosophers don't engage. It's at the institutional design level. Right? But it implies something about the other level of analysis, or at least well, this, in some senses my question, to what degree does your political philosophical analysis at the institutional level imply commitments that are obviously in the background, but not necessarily explicitly stated. And I'm not actually sure, the easy answer is to say, they do and they're just, you know, you're just, you know, you're just a squid, you know, putting up a lot of ink so nobody can see what's underneath. But um, is it necessarily the case that they entail a more kind of libertarian set of outcomes, or do they, necess or do they only entail a different, uh, a kind of activist government that would be of a different form? That is, it may be that if you um, entrench formalism, and not just federalism, I think there's other kind of formalisms that you don't mention, like um, delegation. Right? That is, that there's actually a difference between the executive and the judicial and legislative functions, and they shouldn't be pooled or shared or engaged in a partnership, like everyone likes to talk about. Um, or insulation of bureaucracy is another kind of formalism. Right? That if you want to you know, uh, lobby government, you have to lobby the legislative branch. You can't lobby the bureaucracy directly, trying to get things without going through the legislative branch. Um, is it the case that um, you believe that your your formalisms, not just the ones stated, but the other ones unstated, necessarily entail a um, distributive outcome, or do you think that they only will change the form um, of whatever distributive out set of preferences people might have? Is that no, it's like. Answer, the reason why I'm yeah, going the answers, <laughs> all three of them sequentially. The reason why I'm just standing here is that I'm, I'm sort of arguing with myself and what level of argument I answer that sort of very, very big question. Let me sort of take a few limited cuts at it. Um, the, my, I think my most general answer would be this. First, I do believe that uh, the Constitution um, makes sense, any kind of sense, only against the very powerful um, background assumption of private orders and that those have to make sense. Now, if that doesn't make sense at all, then forget the Constitution, nothing makes sense. Okay, So that means that there are certain biases built into the system against redistribution. You, you start Right? That, that, that has to be part of the system, and, and that's the only way in which I can make any sense of the Constitution whatsoever, or any kind of Constitution for that matter. Um, constitution that, that deserves to make. Now, the question is how powerful is, is that constraint, and how dogmatic do you want to be about the formal rules? Okay? Um, and in that regard, I think that our Constitution, in fact, allows a whole wide range of um, results, right? So, for example, um, to, to, to bring this down um, to earth, um, do I think 
that there's anything at all in the Constitution that would run, that would bar the federal government from running a Medicaid program. No, I don't. They want to run it, let them run it. But what I insist on is let them run it on their own accord. Right? And I think that the way in which it is currently set up, it, it, it's, if not quite unconstitutional, very nearly so. Right? And it, regardless of whether it's constitutional or unconstitutional in a formal sense, it's certainly a bad way in which it's currently set up. Right? And so, and I will give an analogous answer uh, to many, many questions with respect to sort of policies that have practical distributive results. There are ways of skinning that cat. You can achieve almost any result that you want under under the existing constitution. Um, Can I interrupt there? Yeah. Just to ask, I mean, what, what would you understand the delegated powers to be that would uh, be exercised in, in running a Medicare system, a Medicaid system, even if, even if it were one that you thought passed constitutional money? They, they can spend for the general welfare, and I think that's broad enough. So long as they do it on their own, I mean, so long as it's literally their money that they spend. I understand that people can give different answers, and people have traditionally given answers. And even James Madison himself, at various points of his career, gave a different answer to that question. I wouldn't be as doctrinaire and formalistic about that. I, I wouldn't want to be. All I want to be is that, I mean, what I think I achieve, if I, I or what would be achieved, um, if, if you're formalistic about the federalism limitations here and leaving the states in or out of it, is that... If the federal government really had to raise the money, all of the money for Medicaid, right, hire its own bureaucrats to administer that gargantuan system, I think we would all have very different intuitions about the program. We would all be much more adult about it and say, look, what do we actually spend? Do we really want a system on autopilot, which is what we have? And I don't think we would. I mean, we would try to say, look, there are certain worthwhile things that we ought to do here as a, as a grown-up country, right? Uh, but we want to make those decisions, and we want to hold the, the politicians who make those decisions um, to account and let it all be on the budget and let it compete with other budget priorities from, from you know, wars to the environment to everything else, right? None of that is in the system as it, as it currently exists. And so you would, in that sense, make it, if you're a formalist of the grievance kind, you would make it harder to achieve those kinds of ends. But you don't want a system that prohibits, that, that bars those kinds of things ex ante. Because the way I look at a, constitu at a constitution is as follows. It's coordination mechanism. And all you want to do is, you want to be wide open with respect to the ends that you can achieve and with that, that includes the distributive results you want to achieve. All you want to do is, you want to bound the system so that the equilibrium results are within some kind of range that's generally perceived as fair and reasonably and tolerably efficient. That's what you want to do, that's all the Constitution can do. And so. Some, there, may, there are some extreme results that you and I could easily come up with that, no, the Constitution would not, I mean, if it were taken seriously, would not permit under any circumstances. They're easy to envision. But it's, again, I don't think you have to be a libertarian in substance to buy into the, the kind of 
sort of formalist constraints that, that I would like to see. Okay, now let's uh, try to get two or three more questions in before we have to close. Yes, you, sir. One of the early cases that the Rehnquist Court ruled in terms of federalism that surprised a lot of people was the California gun case, the Texas gun case, the uh, Congress case dealing with the guns in the schools, in which the, the court were one of their first times said, no, this is a state issue, it's not a commerce clause, and we're going to move away. And what I didn't hear in your talk was any discussion about the role of state Supreme Courts. And I think of Justice Brennan's article in the early 70s in response to the burger shifting of the court and saying, to especially criminal defense attorneys like I am, you better go look at your state constitution and maybe there that your remedies lie. And then the leading case where I see this conflict today at heightened to the, the highest level is obviously the Supreme Court decision in Massachusetts on gay marriage, which involves a, a Supreme Court of a state, which in our constitutional system has a role. But B, it also affects the issues that you're talking about, full faith and credit and comedy, and those other issues Sorry. So I was wondering if you could comment on the role of state Supreme Courts as being what many of us always thought of as being closer to the electorate, to the, the body policy, and particularly the Massachusetts Supreme Court in terms of how it rules and how it affects the extraterritorial. Right. Um. That's a series of questions, um, and I'll, I'll take a cut, and if I omit one, come get, get back to it. Um, first, the, the Lopez decision. One of the telling facts about, it, it, there are, sorry, to just step back for people who don't follow the Supreme Court as closely as, as, as you and I do, um, there are in the modern era, really only two decisions um, where the Supreme Court has suggested that there are real limitations on, on congressional authority to regulate. Um, one was Lopez, it was this, the, the restriction on, on the private possession of guns. The other one uh, is a case in the United States uh, versus Morrison, which, deal, which dealt with a provision of the Violence Against Women Act, which which is a case that my former organization litigated while I was still there. Um, it's interesting that those are cases dealing with crime, and here's the reason why it's interesting. When it comes to crime, federalism poses no danger that the states might under-regulate, right? If anything, the federalism problem is that states will over-regulate in an effort to export the criminals, right? That is precisely why Tony Kennedy and Sandra O'Connor are comfortable with federalism in that setting, right? And in fact, in both cases, they assured themselves that 40 states already have laws against those kinds of uh, conduct before they said, and therefore we don't need the feds on top. Yeah, it was a, it was when a, it, we, should, we should explain that it was a law forbidding possession of a firearm within a certain distance of a school. It was a, it was a federal congressional law. Right. And uh, what uh, Dr. Grieve just said is that 40 states already had state laws accomplishing this. 
Right? So that's a very telling thing. I mean, the, the, these guys, I mean, even the, the federalism supporters on the um, on the Supreme Court, they are truly the, the heirs of the New Deal. If, if you came to them in, in, with a case where competition might mean less regulation than we currently have on the books, they never, I mean, you couldn't find a vote for that, let alone five. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is... Uh, uh, now go, migrate all the way to the back end of your question, the Massachusetts um, Supreme Court uh, and the decision respecting gay marriage. And I, I think the, the danger or the, the, the federalism problem there is this. It's not the Massachusetts Supreme Court. It's the question of whether you can arrest that at the boundaries, right? Because if you said this is really something for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to decide. You have to say in the same breath, it's also something for the state of Oklahoma to decide on its own accord. Okay? And if you can not sort of arrest sort of the effects of the Massachusetts rulings at the Massachusetts borders, right, then, then I don't think you have a real argument anymore um, for um, for leaving those kinds of decisions in the hands of state judges because that transforms an act of local, if not exactly democratic decision-making, right? at least an act of democratic decision-making into an act of aggression on a sister state. That, and that makes, to me, all the difference in the world. And so that, to me, is the sensible parameters are the sensible parameters of that particular debate. And then, you know, you can have a whole long debate as to whether... You know, don't has enough to do the da 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 da, right? But that to me is the critical variable. And to link this back to the subject of my talk, um, the glitch, a whole lot more could be said for state institutions, including state supreme courts or including state courts, if it were still the case that as a general rule you could arrest the effects of those kinds of state decisions at the borders. Except you can't anymore, right? Like to give you the, the practical example, which I originally had in the speech, and I think it's still in the in the written version of this, which is even more internally long than what you hear heard. Um, we are now being told that a lawsuit between forty million customers across the country and Ford Motor Company, which is headquartered um, in. Michigan and incorporated, I believe, in Delaware, is the exclusive province of a state court and jury in Jefferson County, Mississippi, for no better reason than that a state lawyer filed the case in that jurisdiction. Right? The effects of that decision, whatever it is, rattle through the entire country. Right? And I'm all in favor of the local court system, I'm all in favor of local courts, I'm all in favor of, you know, the, the decentralization and all the rest of it. But under those conditions, I don't see how we can make a reasonable argument for sustaining those kinds of decisions because all of us pay the cost. Right? And and for no better reason than that Mississippi really has only two industries. One of them is three. One of them is um, one of them is agriculture. The other is the armed forces, and the third is the trial lawyers. And what do all of those have in common? You know, that transfer industries. They just consume. One point on the crime, 
the possession of marijuana for medical purposes would seem to be the counter of your argument of overregulate, where the state is going to say, like Arizona or California. So, in terms of that kind of issue, I wonder how that falls into your federalism. But in terms of the Massachusetts case, there is such a long body of federal law, including the U.S. Supreme Court, on issues of marriage and how they have to be recognized in other jurisdictions to avoid bigamy and other criminal conduct, that it would seem that the complexity of it is more than just saying that there are certain things that you'd have to roll back a lot of law to arrest at the border of Massachusetts. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, you would have. Um, and look, the other question is, it, it's a terrific question. Uh, the, the, there are two ways of looking at the, um, at the medical marijuana, um, or for that matter, personal consumption, which I think it plays itself out in the same way. Uh, there are two ways of, um, of looking at it, uh, at least two ways. Um, to my mind, um, well, the, the way the argument runs is that the exception to the pattern I've described that is, states really want to export crime and criminals. Okay, the exception to that pattern is so-called lifestyle crimes. That is to say, where the crime itself has some attraction and might attract people to your jurisdiction. Though with one example, gambling is the traditional one, right? Um, there, the states might have actually an incentive to underregulate, and there's a lot of. Um, you know, there is a pronounced tendency to say, well, you know, that's sort of an externality for other states because, they, you know, people can fly to Las Vegas and come back broke, and, you know, that's really terrible for us. Look, I'm, I'm a formalist enough to say, even though I'm against a lot of the, the, the kinds of things, you know, that are being legalized there, no, I think that's the cost of federalism. That You can't count that as an externality, period, end of debate. Um, that's one way to, to look at it. The other way to look at it is there has been a tendency to say, uh, well, uh, the, the unquestioned constitutional law is that so long as an, a transaction, even if it's purely local, so long as it has an economic, so long as it's economic, okay, it can be regulated by commerce. That is to the cognoscenti, that's Wicked versus Silver. So, your daughter starts a lemonade stand, a local lemonade stand. There's no doubt that Congress has the authority to regulate that beast because it's an economic transaction. She, she sells it, right? With medical marijuana and and growing dope for personal consumption, it's not clear that that is a, an economic transaction in any way, shape, or form. And in any event, many of the transactions, to the extent that they occur, are criminal transactions. So it's not. Right? It's not a legalized transaction. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe some sort of people who are committed to this, this agenda of reviving limitations on Congress, maybe that's an area where we can say, no, there, that's really something that's left to the states. Um, maybe that even if these transactions have some economic component, if they're traditionally sort of criminally regulated, let's leave that to the states. And so maybe that's an opening. And that accounts, that line of thought Counts, uh, accounts for some of the frequency with which those kinds of issues arise. It's one of the areas in which you might be able to make those kinds of constitutional arguments stick. Well, today we had the privilege of listening to a very distinguished scholar who drew our attention back to Madison.
Next uh, Monday, a week from tonight, uh, we'll have a special President's Day uh, lecture. And another distinguished scholar, John Patrick Diggins, uh, will be drawing our attention back to John Adams. Uh, 4.30, uh, Monday afternoon, uh, right here in the same room, John Patrick Diggins, The Legacy of John Adams. Now I hope you will join us for a reception in honor of Michael Greva just outside, and please join me in thanking Michael Greva.